I want to welcome those of you that are over in the, the venue. I'm glad you're with us. Thank you for leading worship over there, Jared and, and the team. And if you're watching online right now, I want to welcome you. If you're listening on the radio, welcome. Um, take your uh, program, and uh, all the verses I'm going to look at are, are inside this little shell here. If you have a Bible and you want to open it up to Nehemiah chapter 7, you can do that. And uh, once again, I just want to greet those of you um, who are vis visiting with us for the very first time, and we're glad you're here with us. Everybody in this room at one time or another was a visitor, and we know it can be a kind of an anxious thing to go someplace that you've never been and wondering what's going to happen and all that, and um, we're just going to look at God's Word together and all the verses we want to make sure that you have a chance to see. We're in a series here at Big Belly Grace called Becoming a Godly Leader, and we're using the life of Nehemiah as our example because he was a great leader. And as I've shared with you for almost 10 weeks now, uh, we're all leaders in this room, every single one of us. Uh, if you're a parent, you're a leader, okay? Dad, that title makes you a leader. Mom, that title makes you a leader. If you're the firstborn child in your home, that, that makes you a leader, some of you are managers or supervisors at the businesses that you work at. That makes you a leader. Some of you are uh, presidents and vice presidents of, of corporations. That obviously makes you a leader. Some of you are the CFOs or the COOs of, of uh, businesses. That, that makes you a leader. Some of you might be captains or sergeants or lieutenants in the fire department or the police department. That, that, that makes you a uh, uh, a leader. Some of you are teachers, right? A lot of teachers in our, our church. That makes you a leader. You're the leader of, of the classroom. And obviously, you're the leader of your own life, right? I mean, nobody has more influence over you than, than, than you do. And Nehemiah has been a, a great tutor for us to look at his life and, and see what we might be able to learn about how to be a better leader in whatever arena God has us. Uh, Nehemiah has taught us that, uh, that, that, that leaders, good leaders, uh, understand prayer, the importance of prayer. They're committed to prayer. Good leaders understand the importance of planning and organizing and motivating. Good leaders understand the importance of dealing quickly with opposition, right? Uh, dealing with sin and stuff that might come up in our lives and our families, our businesses, whatever. Good leaders understand the temptations that come with leadership. Last week we saw that good leaders don't quit. They don't give up. They, they press on through difficult times. And today we're going to look at how leaders maintain their success or how they can make sure that they don't lose what they've gained. And before I get into it, today's message, just need to give you a little backdrop to the story of Nehemiah. Uh, most of you know it. I, I've talked about it now for 10 weeks. But there are probably one or two or ten of you in here, and you're new, you don't know anything about the Bible, and who's Nehemiah, and what is all that about? And I want to make sure you understand it. The Bible tells us about this man named Nehemiah. There's a book actually named after him. And this is a church that believes that this is God's inerrant word, that all of these characters and stories that you read in the Bible were absolutely true. They're historical events. The story of Nehemiah is a historical event. And the story really is about a city called Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is still in existence today, but 2,500 years ago when the book of Nehemiah was written, uh, obviously it was a little bit different. 
And the people of God lived in the city of Jerusalem, and God said, listen, here's the deal. I'm, I'm God, and I want you to live a particular way. Here are my, my commands. Here are my decrees. I want to make sure that you, you, you do what I ask you to do. And as long as you obey me, things will go well. I'll be your God. I'll blow your mind, and you'll, you'll have a rich and satisfying life. Well, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, decided to blow God off. And for those of us that are parents, we understand what happens next, right? I mean, we as parents, or any good parent, we give our children laws, if you will, decrees, commands. We tell our children we want you to, you know, be in at a certain time. We give them curfews. We tell our children, my son, he has to take the garbage cans out and he has to pick up the dog stuff. And all of our kids have little things that they have to do. And as long as they do them, man, life is great. There's peace in our home and things pretty good. They get food to eat and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if my kids say, hey, dad, you know what? I don't really care about your rules. I don't want to live by them. That comes with a consequence. Right, dad? Right, mom? Well, God's no different. God gave some, some, some commandments. And he said, hey, I want you to live like this. Don't do this, do this. And the people of Israel said, no, thank you, Dad. We're not going to do it. And it came with a consequence, and it came with a pretty severe consequence. God allowed an invading army, the Persian army, to come and attack the city of Jerusalem. And in those days, you would put a big wall around your city to protect it. And this invading army came with battering rams, and they bashed down the gates and bashed down the walls and went into the city and messed up all the homes and messed up all the commercial real estate. And they went to this building called the temple and they, you know, destroyed the temple. And that was a special place where the Jews would worship God. And then they rounded up all, the, all of the people who hadn't been killed and they deported them from Jerusalem where they lived to a city called Babylon. Babylon was about 800 to 1,000 miles away. Babylon is where Iraq is today. And so anybody who was alive, they were deported or taken into captivity and made slaves in Babylon. And that's where they were for a number of decades and then God began to extend his grace to the uh, Jewish people, just like we do, right, mom and dad? I mean, you know, we, we ground our children for a week or a month or whatever it is, and at some moment we extend the grace to our kids again and say, okay, you can go out and play or, you know, you can go do whatever it is you're going to do. Well, God's no different, right? And so God extends his grace to the Jewish people, and he allows them to become, uh, come back to Jerusalem, which was about a four or five-month journey. So he allows the Jews to leave Babylon, make their way uh, back to Jerusalem. And obviously when they arrived, the city was a bloody mess. The walls were still down, and now it's been decades, and weeds had overgrown the walls, and looters had gone into the city, and varmints were running all around. I mean, it was a depressing moment for the Jews to come back to their, this special space, if you will, and find it in ruins well, there was a guy by the name of Nehemiah who lived in Babylon. And Nehemiah was a, 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 a high official in the Persian army. In fact, he had made his way up the, the, the governmental chain, if you will, and was very close to the king. And the king at that time was a guy by the name of King Artaxerxes. And he asked the king, he says, King, is it okay if I go back to Jerusalem and help 
you know, rebuild the city that my father was from, to help rebuild the city of my grandfather, to help rebuild the walls and all that. It's a mess, and, I, and the people are all bummed out and depressed, and I just want to go and be a blessing to them. Would you let me go? And King Artaxerxes says, yes, you can go, Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah makes the, the four-month, you know, or five-month journey by camels, arrives in Jerusalem, and finds that it's a bloody, stinking mess. The walls are all down, the people are all there, but the town was just really, just, it was in a heap of rubble. And so he begins to, to look at it and measure stuff, and he came up with a plan, and he gets the people all motivated, and they begin building the wall, right? Well, there were some people out there outside the city that didn't like the idea that Nehemiah was rebuilding that wall. A guy by the name of Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. There were some Arabs, some Ammonites. They didn't like the idea that this wall was being rebuilt. And so they started causing all kinds of problems for Nehemiah, but he dealt with it. Then Nehemiah found out that there were shenanigans going on within the city. Some of the Jewish leaders within the city were ripping off their own people. And it was causing disunity and all kinds of stuff within the city. And, and Nehemiah had to deal with all of that. And the whole time, he just kept building the wall. And last week, we saw that it only took 52 days to rebuild the whole wall around Jerusalem. And when you get to Nehemiah chapter 7, which we're going to look at today, the wall's done. It's finished. All of the praying and, and, and thinking and strategizing he did when he was in Babylon, going to the king and asking the king for permission to leave his job, you know, gathering up all the supplies that he needed, making the four-month, five-month journey to Jerusalem, checking out all the walls, looking at all of the people, dealing with all these losers out there who were trying to stop him, dealing with losers on the inside that were trying to goof things up. He's finally got... The wall, done. And so let's read Nehemiah 7, verses 1 through 5. Actually, let's listen to Max, okay? Nehemiah 7. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And then if you were looking in your Bible, you would see that there's all these names, families, and you'll see thousands of, of, of people that were involved in and we'll get there in just a, a little bit. Last week, um, I was reflecting on Nehemiah chapter 6, where it tells us that he completed the wall in 52 days. And one of the things that I try to do is, you know, you, you can read the Bible, and, you know, and it's just black ink on a page, and you can read some of these great stories in just a few, few minutes. 
But I have this vivid imagination and I always try to put myself in that place. I try to put myself, you know, with Nehemiah as he talked with King Artaxerxes and what that might have been like. I, I try to put myself as one of those family members on the wall, rebuilding the wall. I, I try to put myself in Nehemiah's place and how did he deal with Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem? What was running through his mind? And I'm always, I'm always trying to just imagine what it may have, have been like at that moment. And so when I read those words that he had finished the wall in 52 days, everything that he had been through, finally hearing that Jerusalem was a mess and the people were depressed and, and, and praying and, and finding the right moment to go to Artaxerxes and say, hey, king, can I leave for a couple years? And by the way, king, would you pay for all the labor and lumber and sawzalls and, and, and cement and all the stuff we're going to need to redo that wall? Would you do that? And finally, the king saying yes and then making the five-month journey and getting everything packed and showing up in the city and, and dealing with all the mess and the chaos and all of that. And, and, and now the wall was done. And I had a couple of um, emotions or thoughts. Number one, I wanted to breathe a, a sigh of relief for Nehemiah. Whew, whoa, dude. I wanted to say congratulations, you did it, you finished, you did what you came to do, and man, it's just time to take a break, go on a little vacation, you know? Take it easy now. That was, that was the first thought that ran through my mind. I mean, the wall's done now. All of this work that he had put into it, it's done. But then I had this thought, or a second emotion, or maybe really a question. Now what are you going to do, Nehemiah? You, you've, you've, you've just spent a whole lot of time and energy over in Babylon, praying and thinking and dreaming, and then you, then you made it to Jerusalem, and then you put this whole, whole thing together, and it's done. And now what are you going to do? You did the, the project of a lifetime in, in, in only 52 days. What's next? What are you going to do next? If you were Nehemiah, beloved, what, what would you have done once the wall was completed? Would you sit back, relax, enjoy your victory? Would you enjoy all of your hard work? Would you take a vacation? Would you drive over to the coast, you know, the Mediterranean Sea and take a cruise? And say, man, I've been going at this for a long time, man. Just rebuilt this wall in 52 days. What would you have done? Beloved, how you handle achievement tells you and us a lot about yourself. Or tells us a lot about your character or your, your value system. Listen to me very carefully. One of the most dangerous times in your life is when you finish a big project. When you've reached your goal, when you've accomplished a big task like raising your children. Little baby was born and all of the time you spend up with it at night, nursing them, you know, teething them and, and putting band-aids on them and, and all the stuff that you did, you prayed for those children and then they got into their school years and you kissed them when they went into kindergarten and there they went and you cried and cried and, and then you were they're there for all their birthday parties, right? And then they became an adolescent and you prayed and, and you watched them go out on their first date, right? And now, and now they've gone off to college. Oh, that's a dangerous time in the life of a marriage. That's why a lot of marriages end. Or what about you that are business owners? 
Man, you had an idea, you wanted to start a business, I don't know, you wanted to open up a, a hot dog stand, and man, with our government and the laws and the regulations, man, you went down to the city hall and you got that form and you filled it out and paid the money, and then you got another form and you filled that out and got the money, and after about, you know, five years of just cutting through red tape just to open up a hot dog stand, you finally got it open. You, you bought the stand, you got the stuff, you put the hot dogs in the thing, and there you are, and you have worked hard, prayed hard, invested your own life, your own money, your own time, and... Now what? It's all done. What about those of you that are retired? You spent 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years going into a business, punching in, punching out. Finally, you made your way up to manager or supervisor or whatever it is. And man, you've worked hard, man. You've worked your tailbone off. And now you've retired. It's a dangerous time. Really dangerous time. For Nehemiah, it was a dangerous moment, all of the juice that he had put into rebuilding this wall. But he's done. You see, what tends to happen is, is you breathe a sigh of relief when your kids leave, maybe for a moment. Okay, man, we raised them, man, they're married, they married a godly person, or they're off to college. All right, man, finally got all the permits and all the stuff. I got, I got my little, my cart. All right, man, you know what? I'm finally retired. Nehemiah. Finally got this wall rebuilt. You see, what tends to happen is you let your guard down at that moment. You come, become a little complacent. You become a little unsatisfied. And when you let your guard down, not only does it put your own life in danger, but it also puts in danger what you've already accomplished. So with all this said, Nehemiah in these few verses, I think gives us some really good thoughts on how you as a leader can maintain your success. Or make sure you don't lose the gains, if you will, that you've made. So what do these verses teach us? Well, I think they teach us a lot, but I'm going to just give you uh, two, two things, okay? Number one, you have to re recruit new leaders to help you oversee what you've gained. When you make gains, when you've accomplished things, you've got to recruit new, new leaders to help you oversee it. In verse 1, it says, After the wall had been built, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity, and he feared God more than most people do. Beloved, the, the first thing Nehemiah does after he finishes the wall and he puts up the gates, is, the, is that he appoints leaders. He, he understands he's made some incredible gains here. And the first thing he does is he recruits new leaders. He appoints new leaders. Number one, he appointed gatekeepers. These were the guards. They were, you know, kind of the watchmen or the policemen of the, of the city. Number two, he appointed singers. These were the worship leaders. Worship was an important thing to Israel, an important thing to God. Number three, he appointed the, the Levites. These were the, 
assistance, if you will, to the, to the priests. Number four, he appoints his brother to be uh, uh, the civil leader. He puts him in charge of the city. Today we might call him the mayor, maybe, something like that. And number five, he appoints Hananiah to be the head of the citadel, which was basically a, a military leader, okay? Or, or he was like the, the chief of, of, of police, if you will. He rebuilt the wall around the city, which was his goal. And now he's appointing leaders to help oversee that which he's accomplished. He's got gatekeepers and singers and Levites, a mayor, a, a police chief. Beloved, Nehemiah is demonstrating one of the most important tasks of a leader, and that's this. As any organization grows, you have to recruit and appoint new leaders to help oversee that which what you're doing. Another word might be delegation. You have to delegate things to others because if you don't, the chances are pretty good that you'll lose what you've gained. Look, Nehemiah had never read a management book. He never went to a seminar. He never read In Search of Excellence or anything like that. But he knew these management principles. That as you gain things, as God gives you more, whether it be a church or a business or whatever it is, the only way you're going to maintain it, the only way you're not going to lose the gains is you have to appoint some people to help you with whatever it is the growth was. And he just knew it. How did, how did Nehemiah knew it? Well, he knew it because he had walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He had spent time listening to the voice of God. Obviously, God was the one who gave him the wisdom he needed to not only rebuild the city, but then the wisdom to go, okay, now that I've had these gains, how do I keep them? The Bible says this in uh, Proverbs chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Psalms 111 says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true wisdom. All who obey his commands will grow in wisdom. When you know what the commands of God are and you have them in your mind and in your heart and when you live them out, wow. That's where wisdom is found is when you know what God's word says and you actually live out God's word, you see. Here's the point. Nehemiah had the, the wisdom to know that no organization can ever stabilize itself on one person. A church, a business, a government, even your home. Things go way better in your home when there are two leaders. A mom and a dad. Um, Fifteen years ago, my, my wife was killed in an automobile accident. I became a single parent in a nanosecond. I know the power and the wisdom in having two people leading a home. Found out very quickly that God knew what he was doing when he put a man and a woman together. Things go way better when you have surrounded yourself with leaders. In the very beginning, basically, Nehemiah did it all. You know, he didn't have a committee. He didn't ask for anybody's opinion. He, he didn't have any other leaders. He did the whole thing by himself. He had his hands in on everything. But there came a moment when he began to think about the future. He knew he had to have a plan. He knew he'd lose what he'd gained if he didn't recruit new leaders. 
And beloved, I want you to understand something. I, I know you see me up here most of the time, okay? But I have many, many, many leaders at this church. Many leaders. Some of them are paid. There are pastors of this church, and you know who a lot of them are. But there are way more leaders at this church who don't earn a living here. But they're leaders nonetheless. This is a massive church. There are thousands of people who go to church here. There are things that are happening here that I don't even know about. You see, if I had to know about them all, then this church would be about 50 to 75 people, which is about the typical size of the average church in America. Because that's about all you can manage by yourself. But see, what happens is, is that the Lord gives us something. We gain something. We, our ministry grows. And guess what? If you don't appoint new leaders there, you're going to lose it. And so we're always appointing leaders here and leaders there and leaders over here and leaders who do this and leaders who do that. And I got people who come up to me sometimes and I'll see them in the mall and they'll go, man, Pastor Rick, I just want to thank you for all that you do, blah, 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 blah. I'm a leader in the, this ministry. I don't even know who the guy is. It doesn't matter whether I know. God knows. God knows what he's doing. God will bless him. Now let me give you a, quick, a few thoughts on the kind of leaders you ought to look for, the kind of leaders I look for here at Big Valley Grace. Number one, you look for people with integrity. Listen, business owner. Listen to those of you that are in a, a position to hire people. Listen very carefully. These are the kind of people you ought to look for, the kind of people I look for, people with integrity. Verse 2 says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother, Hananiah, along with Hananiah, uh, the commander of the citadel. Why? Because he was a man of great integrity. You just don't hire anybody. That just gets you into trouble. You want your business to tank in a nanosecond? Hire people who have no integrity. You want to lose what you've gained, business owner, manager, supervisor? Just hire people who have no integrity. I'll goof you up before you know it. The first thing you got to look for is you got to look for people with integrity. Le leadership is built on integrity. Look, if you're the, the owner of a business and you have no integrity, no one's going to follow you. People will do what you say because they want your signature at the bottom of the check they get every two weeks. But they're not following you. If you're the manager or the supervisor, you know what? If you've got no integrity, the people under you, they're not following you. Oh, they'll do what you say because they want a job. They don't want to get fired, but they're not following you. Mom, dad, look, if you've got no integrity, your kids aren't following you. Now, they're going to do whatever you ask them to do because they don't want to get grounded, right? But they're not following. Integrity is an important thing. And one of the things we look for around here, whether it's the pastors or elders or those that oversee different ministries around here, they've got to be people with integrity. They've got to be men or women of, of, of integrity. The second thing you've got to look for are people who are godly. He said, I, I put these guys in charge because he was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most men do. Nehemiah looked for people who took their relationship with God seriously, and that's what we look for. 
You don't become a pastor of this church if you don't have integrity. You don't take your walk with God seriously. You don't become an elder of this church if you don't, you know, have any integrity. You don't, you know, take your walk with God seriously. You're not gonna, you're not gonna become the drummer up here if you don't have integrity and and and, and take your walk with God seriously. You're not gonna be teaching third graders if you don't have any integrity. You don't walk with the Lord. You don't fear the Lord. Listen to me, business owner. Listen to me. Let, let, let's just listen. Listen. I'm going to give you some, some valuable advice. And everybody else, you're going to get some valuable advice here too. If you own a business, I'm going to tell you, the first people you ought to look for are Christians. But don't stop there. The first person you ought to say is, man, that guy's a follower of Jesus Christ. You ought to put your eyeballs on that. But you don't hire a Christian just because they're a Christian. Some of the worst employees you will ever hire sometimes are, are Christians. I know. I've done this a long time. Ladies, some of the worst guys you will ever date, losers, toads, are people who, who are, call themselves Christians. I know that. I've done this a long time here. Just because someone says they're a Christian, that ought to perk your ears up, business owner, and you ought to look at that sheet of paper and say, this guy says he's a follower of Christ. Okay, then what you got to do is this. Are they a man or a woman of integrity? You got to figure that out. Do they walk with the Lord? And how you do that is just call their church. Call Big Valley. Hey, uh... Uh, Pastor Rick Thompson, uh, do you know this guy? No. Hey, Pastor Rick Country, do you know this guy? I, I certainly do. Is he a man of integrity? Not that I know of. Does he walk with God very closely? Not that I know of. Then what you do is you take that, throw it away. Why would you hire a guy like that? No, really. Why? Because he's a Christian? Because he comes and sings Kumbaya? That's why you'd hire him? Why would you date somebody, ladies or guys, just because they tell you you're a Christian? Use, use your brain. If you've got a half a cell working, you go, wait a minute. Okay, so he says they're a Christian. Let me check this out a little bit. Let me, let me do a little bit of research. Man, you call Rich, you, 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 you call uh, 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 Rich Sasser in our men's ministry, and Rich says, you know what? Yeah, I know that guy. He, that guy's got a lot of integrity. You know what? That guy loves Jesus with all of his heart. Oh, dude, that's the kind of guy you want to hire, right? Or you call up, uh, 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 um, you know, Nancy or, or one of our gal leaders, you know, Gretchen or Colleen, and you say, hey, this person here has put an application in. They say to go to Big Valley. Do you know them? Oh, yeah. Man, what a gal of integrity, man. They really love the Lord. Boom, that's the kind of person you want to hire. You see, Nehemiah just wasn't hiring anybody. He just wasn't appointing anybody. I just don't appoint anybody. You want to find people that, that have integrity in their life. People who take their walk with God seriously. That's the kind of Christian you hire. That's the kind of Christian you date. You just don't date somebody because they, they got a cross hanging around their neck. <laughs> Come on, use your brains, man. Business owners, use your minds. I think you ought to hire Christians. I think Christians ought to be the best workers there are on the planet. Unfortunately, not all of them Fear God. Not all of them have integrity. But the third thing you got to look for is this, is are they faithful? Are they faithful? Pastor Scott Butler's right down here, and there was a guy that came to Scott, I don't know, a while back, and, you know, said, hey, can I sing a solo in church? And Scott said, you know, because he's a kind guy, he said, well, you know, one of the things you need to do is maybe get involved in the ministry and, you know, I don't know, join the choir and become a part of what we do and blah, 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 blah. Well, he didn't like that answer. So he found me. Hey, hey, I want to sing a solo in church. And I said, let me ask you a question. How long have you been at Big Valley? Oh, you know, I've been here a week. Oh, really? Really, huh? Yeah. 
Let me tell you something. Why don't you go hold babies for about a year? Why don't you go uh, work with our, our children for about a, a year or so? Why don't you go mentor some teenagers? Why don't you walk the parking lot and make sure it's safe for about a year? Why don't you do something with your life? Why don't you show me that you're, you're faithful to something before I put you up on that platform? You see, Scott's way kinder than I am. The good news is, is he won't go bother any other pastors because some people don't want to be faithful. They just, they just want the gig. I don't care how good his voice is. I don't care. You haven't demonstrated any faithfulness here. You know, Jesus said, if you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in much. You see, faithfulness and promotion go together, at least in Jesus' mind. And they ought to go in your mind Business owner, supervisor, manager. Faithfulness and promotion kind of go together. And so the kind of people that uh, Nehemiah looked for were people with integrity, people who were godly, and people who were faithful. Now, let me give you a bonus thought here, and that is this. You got to make sure you give your leaders just clear job descriptions. Verses two and three, you know, Nehemiah gets these guys and he gives them clear assignments. He tells them what they're doing. Hey, here's the job I'm appointing you to and here's what I need you to do. He gives them very specific instructions. He just doesn't say, hey, you got the job and then, you know, leaves them hanging kind of thing. And let me do this because I'm, I'm kind of limited on my time. I want to take a little side road. And I want to lay something out to you. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 19. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost. Okay, this is the heart of God. God so loved people that he sent his only Son to seek and to save the lost. And that's everybody in this room. That's all of us. Anybody you see today at the mall or the grocery store or driving down the road, passing you up in some car, people walking in your neighborhood, we all... Begin life lost. And God gave Jesus a job description. Before the Father sends his Son from the glories of heaven, he says, Son, here's your job description, so to speak. I want you to go and I want you to, to, to seek and to save the lost. In other words, God didn't send his son and say, hey, I don't know, go be born in that little town in Bethlehem and, I don't know, hang out with people for a few years and figure it out. No, the father gave him a very specific job description. I want you to go and I want you to seek and to save the lost. Now listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 17 as he was praying to the father. He said, Father, just as you sent me into the world to seek and to save the lost, so I'm sending you into the world to seek and to save the lost. You've got the same job description as Jesus. Now the only difference is, is you're not going to go to a cross and shed your blood for, for people. Because your blood won't save anybody. Your blood is tainted blood. Your blood is sinful blood. Your blood can't save a soul. Jesus' blood was perfect blood, holy blood, blood, righteous blood. So your job description isn't to come and die on a cross. But your job description nonetheless is to seek 
to save the lost. You're the ones that are to go and to tell people about the Lord. This incredible story of how God created them in his image and how sin messed all that up and how God still loved us and sent Jesus to die for us. That's your job description, or at least a, a big part of it. Listen to the very first words that Jesus spoke to Peter and Andrew. It says this in Matthew chapter 4. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, hey guys, follow me. And immediately he's going to give them their job description. And I will show you how to fish for people. Literally, the first words that Jesus says to Peter and Andrew, recorded in Scripture, is, hey, guys, I know your job description now is that you fish for trout and bass and, 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 and you know, salmon or whatever, but I'm going to change your job description, and I'm going to make you fishers of human beings. You're going to be people who seek and save the lost so to speak. So, with that said, one of the things we do as a church is we have a few events throughout the year where we make it really easy for you to fulfill your job description. We have this thing called Easter. And we have all of these gatherings, Saturday at 4 and 6, Sunday morning out underneath the cross, outdoors. There's always about 500 guys and gals out there who watch the sun come up and they have a sunrise service. We have our 9 and 11. And it's a chance for you to fulfill your job description, Christian. It's a chance for you to go and invite a family member, a friend, somebody you work with. It could be the person that checks your pool, the person that cuts your hair, does your toes, the person who delivers your mail, the person who picks up your garbage. I don't care who it is. God brings people into your life every stinking day. And God says your job description is to seek and to save the lost. And we make it easy on Easter, just bring them here. And we as believers will have a great time rejoicing in this great moment where Jesus, you know, walks out of the tomb. But it's also a time when I do my best to unpack the greatest story ever, that Jesus Christ loves them. And every Easter, and I don't know what God will do this year, hundreds of people give their life to Christ. Hundreds of people uh, 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 bend their knee to Christ and say, I need Jesus in my life. Happens every Easter. You need to take advantage of that. The, 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 the second thing you need to do if you want to keep what you've, what you've gained is this is you have to guard carefully that which you've gained. Got to guard carefully that which you've gained. Verse 3, basically, Nehemiah says, look, I, I, I want you to make sure you don't open these gates at certain times and make sure you do open them at certain times. I want, I want to post some guards along this thing here. He, he saw what he had gained, and now he's guarding it very, very carefully. I mean, all of the work he had done, the praying he had done, the motivating he had done, the time spent, you know, spent solving problems, dealing with all of these guys like Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, all the time it took him to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem, all the time it took to get the supplies, the 52 days to actually build it. He was wise enough to say, I'm going to guard this thing. I don't want to lose it. I got too much blood in this wall. Too much is at stake, and so he's actually guarding it. 
Now, I want you to know, I think that there's an incredible spiritual principle here. Some of you have worked really hard to lose weight, right? And you didn't guard what you lost, huh? And you gained it all back. Here's the spiritual application. Some of you um, have, you know, you, you, you made a commitment to go to our men's Bible study or our women's Bible study and, and you work hard to learn what God has to say about being a godly man or a godly woman or a godly spouse or whatever. You, you worked hard and, and you grew in your faith. We make commitments to go to celebrate recovery and, and we work hard to get through all 12 steps and, and we grow in our walk with the Lord. We make a commitment to go through the follow class and, and we do all of the homework and, and, and we work hard and we, we grow in our faith, right? We make a commitment to our marriages and we go to the marriage life events or the new series that's gonna come up you know, on marriage and, and, and we work really hard to have a great marriage and we grow in our love for our spouses, right? But here's the deal. Oftentimes you don't guard what you gained. And when you don't guard what you've gained, it's unbelievable how quickly your life can change. Huh? Some of you are thinking to yourself, man, I don't even want to go to that men's conference. I went to the one last year. And you went and, man, you heard the great speakers and, and the verses and you memorized some stuff and you walked out of here going, dude, man, this is unbelievable. Man, I'm going to be a different man. I'm going to be a godly husband. I'm going to be a godly father. I'm going to be a guy who, who, who when, that, when God brings that woman into my life, I'm going to be a godly man for that woman. And, man, you walked out of there pumped and excited. And then there came a moment, huh, where you didn't guard what you had. And it's like, dude. Back to the same old junk, right? Some of you came to celebrate recovery and you worked really hard. You got through step one. You worked really hard. Got through step two and worked really hard. Got through step three. Took a step backwards. Went to step two, step three, step four. And you worked hard, man. You prayed with people and you loved people and you had your sponsor and things were going great and things were wonderful, man. And whatever that thing was, pornography or alcohol or narcotics or whatever it was, woo, victory. And then you didn't guard it. Stop checking in with your mentor. Got a little bit too busy to come to church. Decided you couldn't come to our men's ministry, couldn't come to women's ministry, and you didn't guard what you had, and whoop! Slipped back, didn't you? Remember the day you got married? Man, you walked down the aisle, the dress and the thing and the tux and you walked up to the thing and there was the pastor and you didn't even hear what the pastor said. No. You just had googie eyes for one another. It was just blah, 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 whatever, blah, blah. All you wanted to do was get to the honeymoon, right? Amen, right? Amen. Yeah, honeymoon, 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 right? And things were wonderful and all you heard was I do, I do. And I do, I do. And then you had to go meet all these people you didn't really want to meet, and you hung out, and you did all this stuff. You're going, oh my gosh, I just want to get to the honeymoon for crying out loud. And then finally you got out of there, and man, woo, things are great. Woo! And some of you didn't guard what you had, huh? Didn't guard it. Had something really beautiful. 
Worked really hard, too. He didn't guard it. You see, Nehemiah gives us an incredible illustration here. He worked too hard, put too much juice into that wall. He wasn't going to lose it. He was going to guard it, literally guard it. And some of you have to do that with your spiritual life. you got to guard the gain. Some of you are doing really well in the Lord right now. I'm going to tell you right now, this is the moment where you say, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to going to our men's conference. I'm going to commit myself to going to men's ministry. I'm going to commit myself to go to women's ministry. I'm going to recommit myself to go to Celebrate Recovery because I didn't guard what I had and I fell down and I blew it. You walk back into Celebrate Recovery on Tuesday and say, you know what, I didn't guard what I had and I'm back here to rebuild the wall again. Some of you just need to do that. It happens to all of us. Paul said this to a, his young friend, uh, Timothy. He said, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Guard it. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness, by following just crummy people who say all kinds of crummy things. The Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. And the reason why some of you got sucked back down into the rat hole is because you got around some crummy people. And those crummy people were able to get you to put down your guard. And maybe today's the day you say, I'm, I'm, I'm taking back up the guard again. Listen, I don't think, it, I, I've been here long enough, 30 years. I, I've seen a lot of people, my friend Rick Hanks is over here. Man, we've seen tons of people who were here and hip hip hooray Jesus. And, and man, they were all gung ho doing all kinds of great things for God. And now they're nowhere to be found. In fact, someone will even tell you, I hate God now. I hate Jesus now. I hate the Bible now. And the issue isn't that they went from love to hate. That's not the issue. The issue is they went from love to neglect. They neglected what they had. They didn't guard what they had. And now they just communicated as, oh, I hate God now. I hate the church now. I hate the Bible now. And I hate Jesus no, there was a time you loved God and you loved Jesus and you loved his word. You just didn't guard what you had. And some of you are right on that line, I'll bet. You're thinking to yourself, you know, I don't, what am I even here, man? Today's the day you need to say, you know what, maybe I've neglected some things. Peter weighed in with these words. He says, I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends, be on guard so that you will not, uh, uh, so that you will not be carried away by the errors of the, these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and, and Savior Jesus Christ, you see. And one of the things I love about, about Nehemiah is he understood that he had gained so much, and so he appoints these leaders, you know, to make sure that, that I don't lose this, and then he says, I'm literally going to guard it. I, I put too much into this. I'm going to guard it. Now, now let me give you a, um, a bonus thought here, okay? You have to be intentional about what, what you put in the space, what you put in, in God's space. In verses 4 and 5, what happens is, is that, and I want you to follow this. The wall's been put up. God had Nehemiah put the wall up so that there would be this incredible space for God's people, the city of Jerusalem. 
The problem was, was that when the walls got up and Nehemiah walked around the city, he was going, dude, there's nobody in the city. The space has not been filled up with the people. And so God then leads Nehemiah to begin to find out where are all the people at? You know, they were all out living outside the gate. But here was this incredible space that God had created. Now listen, just, just listen. And I wish I had time to unpack this. All throughout the Bible, we see God creating incredible spaces. The Garden of Eden was an incredible space that God created. I think, I think Noah's Ark was an incredible space that God created for Noah and his family to escape the, the wrath of God to come. Nehemiah obviously had created this incredible space called the city of Jerusalem, and God wanted it full. The greatest space that's ever been created is a place called heaven. And just like God wanted the city of Jerusalem to be filled with people, God wants heaven to be filled with people. That's God's desire is that, is, that, is that heaven would be filled with people. In fact, there's a, a great story in Luke chapter 14 of the banquet, the parable of the banquet. And the story is about God who sends out his servants to go out and fill up the banquet hall full of people because God's throwing a big party. And the servants come back and they said, hey, listen, nobody wants to come. And he says, okay, then go out to the poor and the needy. Just get back out there because I want my banquet room filled. And they go out and they bring all the people in. And then, the, then, then God says, wait a minute, there's still room. Go out to the highways and the byways of life because I want my banquet room filled. And that's heaven. Listen to me. God has given you a job description to go and to seek and to save the lost. Why? Because he wants this incredible space called heaven to be filled. Just like he wanted this space called Jerusalem to now be filled because the walls had been built. But there's only one way you get into that incredible space called heaven. Listen to me. Heaven is a perfect place. Obviously, if that's where God is, it's perfect. None of us are perfect. So we can't get in. So how do we get in? Well, listen, Jesus was perfect. He was holy and he was righteous. And when you invite Jesus into this space, you see, you were created in God's image. You are a space that God created. And he wants to live inside of you. And when you invite Jesus Christ into your life, now you have someone in you who is perfect, who's holy and righteous. And now the Father can say, now you can come into heaven, this incredible space, because my son lives in you, my perfect son you see, one of the things that I thought was interesting as I read through this little chapter here in, of, of Nehemiah is 
how God wanted Jerusalem filled. He wanted that space filled. And then I began to think about other spaces. In fact, John Byron was really, him and I had a great time last week talking about this. He wants you in, in heaven, in that space. Most of us have given our life to Christ. We're going to be in that space someday. But there might be one or two of you that are here right now and you're going, dude, I, I don't know the Lord. I'm not perfect and there's no way I'm getting into heaven. I need Christ in my life. I need to invite Christ into my space, my heart, my mind. And so why don't you just close your eyes real quick over in the venue. Just shut your eyes for just a moment. And Pastor Scott's coming up and he's coming up over in the venue and I just want to give you a chance while your eyes are closed. If you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I, I've never invited Christ into my life. I've never invited Jesus into my life. I was always somebody who just thought Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, a prophet. I, I didn't realize that he was the son of God. And you want to receive Christ into your life right now, invite him into your space, so to speak. Right now, all you got to do is just mean this. Just say this in the quietness of your heart. Just say, Jesus, I understand now. And I invite you into my life right now. Come into my heart. Come into my life. I want you in my space. Cleanse me of my sin, Jesus. I want to go to heaven, the greatest space ever created. I want to go there. Now, while your eyes are closed and all that kind of stuff, if you meant that prayer, that prayer is not in the Bible anywhere, I just made it up, but if you meant that, if you said, Jesus, come into my life, come into my space, so to speak, the Bible says that he did, and he cleansed you of your sins. He made you perfect. He made it so that you can go into the greatest space ever, and that's heaven, and I was wondering, while your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, raise your hand if you prayed that, just, just that I could see. Yeah, right here, a bunch of you here. Yeah, right over here, a bunch of you. Man, just make sure I see your hand. Yeah, man, a whole bunch of you. Yeah, man, okay, you can put your hands on. I'm sure there might have been one or two over in the venue. I don't know. But go ahead and look up here. here here's the deal. Man. We have a place, a space, if you will, a really special space called the altar room. And we're very intentional about what happens in that space. The spiritual leaders of our church are in there, the pastors and the elders, spiritual leaders of our church. And maybe you're here and you raised your hand, and there were a lot of you that raised your hand, and if you'd go in there and say, hey, I don't even know what's going on, man. I just know something was happening, and I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my life. We'd love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. We'd love to rejoice with you. If you just give us your name, I'd invite you to a class that I teach called the Follow Class. It's just a few weeks long, and I get to meet you, and we get to talk about some of the things that the Bible teaches. Maybe you're here and you've recognized, you know what, you, you didn't guard your spiritual life very well, and you've kind of gotten off track. Why don't you go in there and let us pray with you? Every guy you'll meet in that room at one time or another didn't guard what they, what they had. We all understand how that goes. But those are all people that have walked with God a long, long time. They, they, get, they understand that. Let us pray for you. Maybe your marriage isn't doing very well. Let us pray for you. Maybe your dad has gone sideways and you're a son or a daughter. Would you let us pray for you? 
I don't know what's going on in your life, but that's what the altar room is for. The preaching's done, the singing's done, the giving's done, but God ain't done, is he? In some of your lives right now, he's still working. And take advantage of it. That's what that space over there is for. It's for you to sort out maybe what the Lord is doing in your life. And so, uh, Scott, would you pray for us right now? And Scott, over in the, the venue, you, you, you pray there, okay?